Wilding. In the last podcast, I referred to work done by Appalachian man Tyson Yunkerporter, author and academic from far north Queensland. Well, Tyson just keeps on giving. In an interview with Anthony James on his podcast series, The Regeneration, Tyson talks about living in the city and the frustration he feels at not being on country and free to do the small essential things like pissing outside. Thank you, Tyson. This has so given me permission to look at this. Pissing outside in the garden, on the lawn or in the bush is just how it's meant to be. I've always related to that old joke, what is a stockman's breakfast? Answer, a piss, a smoke and a look around. The earth welcomes our water return. And it's a vital pleasure for me to be able to walk barefoot outside in my jammies first thing in the morning. And in terms of regenerative farming practices, I realise I've stumbled on one of the most simple tests you can do to assess the condition of your soil, especially if you're of female persuasion. Now, a lot of my soil is a long way from being a carbon sponge, the condition I've been advocating for long and hard in all of these podcasts, mainly because of a few decades of an uncommitted lawn mindset, a reluctant mindset on my part, and the parking of cars on the grass. The soil is compacted. So I'm ashamed to say there are many places on our small patches of tired-looking lawn where I have to sort of do a crouchy shuffle to keep my feet out of my own urine because it doesn't sink in. It spreads as it would on the concrete driveway. So a small garden can be very educative. From the micro to the macro, you get an idea of the living reality of healthy soil and how much rain would be lost to the roadway by soil compaction. And here is another simple and profound pleasure that Tyson didn't mention, but I'm confident would endorse, to be able to access rainwater from a tank, sticking my whole head under the tap first thing, pouring a bucket over my body on hot days, washing the salt off after a swim in the warm, nutrient-rich, seaweedy soup that is the Indian Ocean in summer in these parts. another lesson learnt about the macro in the micro. Last year, just before the colder months started to bleed into the hot, dry months, and in the Midwest, this can be as early as October, I got a sudden rush to the head and decided to put in some seedlings and seeds for fast-sprouting salad greens that might have a chance to get going before the moisture left the soil. This required me to create space by thinning out the colder weather grasses, nettles, rockets and other easy-going annuals that come with the rain and create heavy green cover over most of the garden. So I positioned myself in a likely growing bed and started heaving out the grasses by the handful, soil and plants flying as I enjoyed the contact with the reasonably friable soil. Then I nearly face-planted in the garden when one tug met with strong, unexpected opposition – Turns out amongst the annuals was a forgotten perennial, a summer active grass known as native millet. This, the fabled Panicum decompositum, a common grass in pre-colonial Australia, has highly nutritious, shiny little brown seeds and was believed to have been a major food crop across inland swathes of the rangeland, 
So the first flour ever ground, the first bread ever created on planet Earth, is believed to have been made from these seeds by an Australian Indigenous woman. Being summer active means that when the dry and hot conditions prevail, these plants stand their ground. They're designed to hunker into the soil with exceptionally developed root systems. Now, to hammer all this lived experience home, I recently went to a native grasses field day in Perendry, hosted by NAC. Rod Butler, local farmer, showed us a few sites that demonstrated how intensive managed grazing of sheep can wake up country. I was interested to see how the land at Pine Ridge, owned by Perth company Carbon Neutral, had progressed since I'd recorded a podcast called Relaxing with Sheep last winter in response to the project. They had experienced great summer rain and the bare ground between the rows of trees planted for carbon capture was alive with plants, including agweeds, native annuals and the odd perennial, a result that exceeded Rod's expectations. Then at a nearby roadside verge, Tim Wiley, rangeland ecologist, shared his excitement about the mineral and water capturing capacity of perennials through the lens of ground temperature. Bare ground on a summer's day will average 65 degrees Celsius. Within the canopy of a native perennial like bluebush, Mariana, a hard-bitten common arid zone plant, the temperature will be about 30 degrees cooler. All of us could observe that the friendlier atmosphere created a space where other plants could and had established themselves. Back at the pavilion, Tim shared the results of a trial run at Binu, arid land north of Geraldton, that tested the mineral and water-carrying capacity of annuals versus perennials during the terrible drought of 2006 that lasted for two to three years. Available phosphorus in the soil came in at three times higher for the perennial plants than the annuals. Similar elevated levels of organic carbon, potassium, sulphur and pH levels were recorded. This was staggering enough, but what really blew Tim's mind was when they worked out where the perennial plants were getting their elevated moisture levels. The only explanation is that they have the ability to harvest water from the sea breezes that are a feature of life in this part of the world. This gives perennials superpower amongst plants. Tim had a few provisos regard perennials. It takes a while to establish them and retrain a broadacre annual system to a perennial system. He reckons four years before the biodiversity really kicks in. Running stock helped this process along enormously. Once perennials have a bit of a hold in a paddock, it is possible to graze them down and then sow annuals in autumn. In a good year, a farmer can harvest a grain crop, and in a bad year, they've created a good spread to keep their stock fat and happy. The other big problem is actually sourcing stock of local perennial seeds. Some of the farmers there had experimented with the South African varieties freely and cheaply available in WA, but they were struggling to source the native seed. 
One, it costs about 300 bucks per kilo because most of it's from small operations in the east and the seeds are subject to strict quarantine processes. When non-Aboriginal farmers arrived and quickly became the dominant land managers, they overlaid the perennial plant system that existed with an agricultural approach that relied on the cropping of annuals. So when the hot weather hit, annuals produced their seed, withered and died, and eventually either blew or flowed away with the topsoil as wind and rain lashed the earth. Once you add clearing, burning, overgrazing and ultimately chemical farming practices to support this annual system, you have a recipe for an agricultural program that has done grave damage to ecological systems across Australia. I had the intellectual capacity to understand this, but there's nothing like a near face plant, experiential proof that a native perennial has an impressive root system, even when young and growing quietly amidst the green annuals. through Tyson's ideas, here's some thinking of water, fresh water, from an Aboriginal perspective that's been gifted to us all through the medium of story, filtered, of course, through my wadular mind. South of Geraldton, at the mouth of the Greneff River that starts east of Geraldton in the rangelands, there are occasions when rain from a cyclonic event that happens in the east drives huge volumes of fresh water down the river where it breaks through the sandbank into the ocean. This is a turbulent meeting full of drama characterised by big waves, stormy waters and soil and nutrient-laden water. It also heralds a big increase of all kinds of nutrients that in turn attracts birds and hunters of all ilk and it's on, a moment of abundance and an opportunity to feast. The river broke through to the sea in early March and I joined the throngs of people who enjoy the drama of the massive red pungent plume of soil as it empties into the ocean. Before colonisation, the water flow would have been different. Now levee banks stop it flooding over the land and it's corralled into a roaring erosion-gouged riverbed that occasionally takes out bridges on its way down to the coast. Indigenous stories of water carry general knowledge and teaching about the workings of the natural world. The local story of Greneff Estuary is of the clash of the salt and freshwater serpent as they meet in battle at the mouth of the river. The story goes that the saltwater serpent drives the freshwater serpent inland where it lies licking its wounds in the inky blackness of a deep permanent pool at the base of some sheer cliffs. A year or so ago, I was lucky enough to go on a bush tour with Derek Councillor around important Aboriginal cultural sites. We went to Ellendale Pool, the resting place of the Bimmera, freshwater serpent, where it's biding its time until it's ready to do battle again when the rain rushes over the inland plains towards the coast and the whole cycle of renewal starts again. It's such a great story. 
and such an imaginative way to teach kids or adults about the natural world and the way nutrients return. It allows poetry and spirit into the life-giving cycles that affect us all. Tyson's work centres on the importance of place. This is central to Indigenous knowledge. And it's taken me a long time to get a handle on this notion. It used to be an irritant to me to listen to Indigenous talk about connection to country. I would have been one of the whitefella in the room who wanted to assert that I love this land too, sometimes citing generations of occupancy to cement my sense of connection while being fully aware that I can't, can't compete with 40 or 60,000 years of continuous relationship to country. And I, they, we all do love this land. But I've dropped the defensiveness. I think non-Aboriginal people need to do the psychological work to get with the program. The aggrieved way some still react to this question of love of place is a prime example of the fragility that seems to be occupying racial thinking at the moment. This isn't a competition, but it does allow another opportunity to acknowledge the destruction wrought to all our lives by colonialism. I'm with Eileen Morton Robinson, another wonderful Indigenous thinker and academic. I heard her talk on an ABC podcast, The Philosopher's Zone, and I'll show the link on the Soil and Human Health website. Reconciliation needs to be explored by non-Aboriginal people in terms of the violence of the past and their relationship to it. When the Europeans arrived in Australia all those decades ago, they violently dispossessed the inhabitants of their land, their culture and their lives. As a great-great-great-blah-blah granddaughter of the boat people, I can't take the blame, but I can attempt to take responsibility and acknowledge the enormous downstream effects of colonial violence for both Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people. We have all lost so much. And after all, before my ancestors became civilised, in inverted commas, I too lived in a tribe in the forest somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere, presumably in tune with nature and presumably oriented to the notion of custodial living with the natural world. Traditional Indigenous communities worked, still work, on the idea of collective resources requiring collective and community management of ecosystem function, which means that the big things, soil, water, ecosystem health, were the responsibility of the collective. This is so different to contemporary ag communities that are organised in terms of individual land ownership and the commodification of resources like water and food. This is a big philosophical divide. And I'm not suggesting we launch into an experiment of communal living, but I am thinking that what connects Regen Ag with the Indigenous way of being is that of holistic thinking and management. COVID surely has given us an idea that a return to the concept of commons and of the importance of what is local 
might be essential for us to construct an inclusive future where all can thrive. So, place, the concept of place. I try to place myself in the land in a way a tribal person might. My friend Indra, in tune with Indigenous ways, sorted me out as I floundered around, experimenting with words to try and express my relationship to the ground I stand on. She said, you live on the land that juts into the sea. There you go, the west end of Geraldton. There is a new reality in there for the wilding of Amanda. Surely much more interesting than living at the corner of X Street and Y Terrace. If I truly orient myself in this way, everything else I know shifts. It's thrilling to me to contemplate the idea of a natural wildness, not as a terrifying outside force, but as something intimately known.' 